Welcome back, fellow Weird and Wild Ones. Um, This is episode two of season four, and you will notice that I'm like kind of getting more into the swing of things. Like each season, at the beginning of each season, I'm a little bit rusty at interviewing folks, and it's a little bit awkward. Um, But then as I get like into the swing of things and more comfortable, like... (laughs) There's a lot more ease and flow in the conversation. Um, And maybe y'all can't, like, see that, but I definitely can and and hear that. I still love each episode, but I definitely notice the difference um, as this, you know, the seasons progress. Um, Another thing that's different in this episode is that I didn't read people's, uh, what do you call it, their bios, because it took so long with so many people in the space. And I was like, I want to save our time for deep and juicy conversation. So that shifted this episode. Um, It was so good to have these folks uh, back on. Um, Everyone in the space had been on the podcast before. um, And each of these people are doing amazing and beautiful work. Um, and I'm deeply inspired by them. So at the end of this episode, I really want you to look these folks up, follow them. Um, there's the, they're doing workshops and writing books and um, protecting our waterways. So please, uh, please, please, please follow these folks. And I hope you enjoyed the episode. All right. Welcome, welcome everyone to season four of the Sunseed Community Podcast. I cannot believe it. It's season four. Um, and I'm so excited um that I get to spend the second episode of season four with all of you. Each of you has been on the podcast before, so thank you for coming back. Dahlia, Kiem, Bigwind, and Julia. Um, instead of doing your bios today, we're just going to get kind of right into our check-in question. Um, so the question is, who are you bringing into the space with you today? It could be ancestors of any kind, um, loved ones that are still here. But yeah, who are you bringing into the, to this space with you today? And for the people who may not know you, can you please share your full name, um, your pronouns, and then yeah, the question. And it can be popcorn style. Actually, I'm gonna pick. I'm gonna. Uh, uh, I'm gonna do Dahlia first. <laughs> I I didn't want to be the first one to go. Um, <laughs> So my name is Dahlia Kinsey. I don't use any pronouns at all. So name only. I am bringing with me today ancestors known and unknown, chosen family since sometimes in this life, a lot of my blood relatives are not people I would take with me anywhere. So I'm assuming in the people that have passed on, that is a thing as well. So whatever benevolent spirit that wants to claim me and look out for me, they're here too. Um, As far as my background, anybody who remembers our episode together, we are cult fam, goddess and I. So I am a cult fam. (laughs) 
am a cult survivor and I am a registered dietitian. I basically work with people who have more than one marginalized identity. So usually folks like us, QT, BIPOC folks, and a lot of the work I've been doing lately is working with healthcare providers so they can provide better treatment, more equitable treatment when we go to see them, like all this transphobia in healthcare communities right now is making me want to gouge my eyes out. So I know I still have a lot of work to do. And you released a book. You released the book. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I have visibility problems, obviously. So I keep forgetting to tell people about <laughs> the things that I do. I wrote Decolonizing Wellness, and it is a QT BIPOC centered guide to escaping the diet trap and healing body image issues. And more than anything, it's about protecting your health, your peace, your happiness as a person who's been conditioned to devalue your own well-being. Like we've mostly all been raised to be prepared to be eaten by the ruling class, like literally consuming our bodies in so many ways. And it's very rare that anybody tells you that the systems that are in place, systemic oppression literally makes you ill and literally breaks the body down. And the remedy to that to a large extent is things that we feel intuitively called to do, which is gather and be in community with each other. But how often do you see anyone emphasize, especially in a healthcare setting, that you really need to be around people who see you as a full ass human being. And a lot of times it's gonna have to be people who are having a similar lived experience to you. Mm, yes. Well said. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for coming back on Dahlia. <laughs> um, okay. Next up, Kiem, do you mind going? Selena fan number one. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. This is so exciting to be among such wonderful, brilliant minds. Um, so I'm super excited for this conversation. Uh, my name is Kiyom Marcelo Junio. My pronouns are they and them. Um, and if you know me like that, she and her. <laughs> um, and I am calling into the space the spirits of the children who are yet to be born, the future generations um, who are looking at us um, to create this world for them. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kiyom. Ah, okay. Um, I'm gonna go. Who's next on my screen? So, Big Win, do you mind going next? Yeah. Um, Heath the Tina, Hobbethan, Sacy Nichia, Nah, sitting on, he nana in and on, hot day Nichia. Hello. It's good to see you all here tonight. Um, my rap pool name is Wind River. Most people call me Big Wind. Um, named after the Big Wind River. I'm from the Wind River Reservation. I grew up in Arapahoe, Wyoming. And if you remember the episode I was on, um, I'm a water protector and land defender. And um, I believe, you know, as a two-spirit person, a part of my community that um, land defense, water protection is a part of um, my journey. And in that, we have to create community. And in, to create community, that means that we have to have alternative living systems. So I'm, I feel like I have invested a lot into that and I feel really compelled into that and um, I feel like the what I'm bringing into this space right now is 
um, my inner child, one of them, I feel like would be my inner child because I feel like they're not bound to the confines of like um, our society. And even when we're talking about like forgiveness and trust and things like that, I think it's good to remember like that, that part of yourself. And of, of course the ancestors, but yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm feeling this like inner child vibe. Like I feel like that's gonna come and like have such a big role. Shout out to Kim <laughs> in like our whole conversation. Um, and thank you so much, Big Win, for coming back on and just sharing your wisdom, more of your wisdom, more of your magic. <laughs> um, and Julia, would you like to go next? Sure. I'm Julia Mallory. I feel like I'm never good at introducing myself. Um, yeah. <laughs> so what I'm bringing into the space is not... Uh, a good introduction <laughs> let's start there um maybe a little humor maybe a little um comedic relief um I feel like my people are always like with me um no matter the space that I enter and so I I'm open to also being surprised I don't know who is gonna come through and um join us in this space so um I feel like I'm I'm bringing trying to bring my best self and bring some energy after a relatively long but rewarding day so um yeah I'm happy to be here I'm so happy you're here too I shaded that I feel like there's a lot of like water energy coming through and like child playful energy coming into this place um shout out black mermaids with julia mallory also julia you just premiered your first film can you tell us what the name of the film is sure the name of my short film is called grief is the glitch um and it is a short experimental film um and glitch is it has multiple applications. I think in the film, I'm trying to um, demonstrate the glitch like in a modern sense, like uh, a glitch being something that commands our attention, um, that is looking for some sort of resolution perhaps. Um, also thinking about um, our online connectivity and how that can also sometimes how um, death can be looped um in online spaces and um yeah it, it's a whole long <laughs> like when I start talking like when I start trying to explain the glitch it's like more things come through like oh yeah the glitch could also represent this but the key tenet of the film is actually um archival footage of my late son Julian and he is talking about um, the video was recorded in like January, 2017 um, and Julian passed in um, 
in June 2017 and he's basically talking he's like being interviewed by one of his mentors and they are asking him about what does he think about all the violence that has happened in our community and so he kind of starts explaining you know what he thinks the violence mean and that how people when they take a life they don't realize that they are taking that other person's life in their own life because of you know how the violence will also stunt them um, as a human and so it's like a lot of foreshadow and it's kind of uh, relatively creepy, but I'm also very grateful that he left us his voice and also saying that even, you know, like we can speak for ourselves. Um, and so I'm happy to just be able to, to have that, to have that, that impactful um, footage from him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing more about your film. Um, there's something really precious about having recordings or like audio of um, our loved ones who have transitioned. Mm -hmm. I have some of my um, grandmother and I that's dear to my heart. So yes, um, I understand that. Um, I think for me, I feel like, especially with this, conversation we're about to have and it, it's going to be my 30th birthday in January and I just have such a deep appreciation for my friends that I've known since middle school high school and so I feel like I'm bringing in those like way back friends with me and also the friends who and the loved ones who continually don't give up on me or us or even themselves they are here in this space um, with me and us today. And I feel really grateful for that. Um, always the ancestors. Yes, big one. Always the ancestors be here. Um, and again, water. Like water keeps coming. And I feel like the ancestor of water is here too. So I'm feeling that. I'm feeling that. Ah, okay, y'all. Let's get, let's get into these questions. So the first one is, um, and it's open for anyone to answer, but what have you been learning about grief, repair, and growth since we last spoke? I've been thinking about this one, and part of me wanted to have something that sounded more evolved, <laughs> But in reality, I feel like what I've actually been learning is that it's okay to not be interested in any of those things, depending on how the relationship makes you feel. Because our time here is so short. And I feel like all of us on this panel, I not panel, all of us in this room, we have clear missions and we seem to be clear on our missions. And it feels like there just isn't enough time to get there. So that's the feeling I have. I feel like when I was born, I already felt like the clock was ticking. What am I supposed to be doing? I got to get started because I was sent here with a mission. And those relationships that just make me feel tired, even if they could be repaired, I realize I'm no longer interested. And it could be because I turned 40 last December. I'm going to be 41 this year. <laughs> And it's just, it's like something 
snapped. I don't, or maybe something clicked. And I have heard for so many years that people said, oh, in my forties, I just started doing what I wanted. And so it could partially be, I was geared up to be like, here are new boundaries. And now that I'm in that spirit, the only relationships that I'm willing to put that type of energy into are the ones that already made me feel nurtured and held. And there could be a wound there, but it feels worth the energy to repair it because we edify each other. And in those other cases where I just felt like I needed to repair this relationship because it's supposed to be, and that's an air quotes, a meaningful relationship, maybe because of how you're related to that person by blood. I have just decided to let that go. Yeah. That's all weird. <laughs> These texts, yes, you know, texts stay on red. Also. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think goddess um something that I've been thinking about since our last chat um especially especially in relationship to grief and grief work it is such an entangled web and trying to uh trying to have conversations with folks around loss and there has been so much suppressed grief um and realizing that you know it's not that I didn't realize that like people have real trauma around some of the things that they um, are grieving. But I think even thinking about how safe, how safe some, how safe people need to feel in their bodies before they can even be open to the experience of trying to, to even tap into um, whatever signals that their body is sending them around grief. And so I know that I always try to approach the work from from a place that is not centered in shame, but realizing that there are so many conditions sometimes that have to exist for people or even before people can even face it. And so I think what I've been trying to do is just continue to find more creative ways to engage with folks and figure out where is there a place of safety um, to help. I won't say help folks get there, but just seeing, you know, what is possible. And it's not always a, I mean, obviously it's not an easy process um, because we are so much in a society that is very grief avoidant. And so, you know, people, we bring in our whole lives of not not really sometimes dealing with things um, or even being able to acknowledge it, um, let alone name it. So it's a lifelong pursuit. (laughs) I think, um, you know, I think that's probably something else that I'm learning and just even just respecting that everybody, you know, some folks are doing their grief work, but they're not going to call it that. Like that would never be a name that they would use. They, you know, and, you know, folks are healing in a variety of ways. It doesn't just have to be one way or the ways that we prescribe. So, um, also just being open to that too just like oh you know not everyone is out here with a lot of labels and names sometimes they're just doing their work in their own quiet and intentional way yes yeah when you talk about like the different ways of like 
or like the conditions that need to be in place that brings up for me a question that I ask myself all the time is like is it me that needs to step up to the conditions in order to show up or are the conditions not yet ready for me to fully blossom and be vulnerable. And I ask myself all that, that all the time. And a lot of the time I don't have an answer. I still don't know. So yeah, I feel you there so much. I think that question around vulnerability is so interesting because I think, <sighs> I would say that's probably, that's been a sticking point for me over the last several months, this idea around vulnerability and how it has become kind of this, this catch-all. And I worry sometimes that hearing you say that, like, oh, you know, stepping up, do the conditions need to exist? Or am I stepping up and possibly, you know, trying to move along the conditions? And I paraphrased a bit because that's not exactly what you said on that last part. But um, I worry about that sometimes because I'm like, vulnerability um wanting people to be able to be like yes there are certain conditions there's certain boundaries I need in order for me to be vulnerable right like <laughs> you can't just be out here um in unsafe settings with people that you don't trust people that you have not um, been able to determine, you know, what their intentions are for you and just being vulnerable, like that does not keep us safe. I'm sorry. I'm not, a, I'm not advocating for that. <laughs> I'm not encouraging just kind of this blanket vulnerability. Um, I don't particularly feel like just being vulnerable, no matter the situation or conditions, I don't think that is wisdom. Um, so that's, that's something that I'm always trying to find the right words to be able to express that and to also, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think about how the old folks used to say, you know, you can't just let anybody in your business and you can't just let anybody into your space energetically. And when I was younger, I just didn't think, I didn't think that made any sense but I had a lot more emotional energy back then. And now I understand what they were saying. And I think of the times where I tried to rush intimacy, maybe as a teen or somebody in my early, early twenties, be by oversharing or trauma dumping. And there's some things that can't be rushed and relationships. Sometimes you do meet somebody and you immediately feel safe with them, but it still takes time to really establish a profound connection and a reciprocal relationship. And I think there's so many things about community that I was never explicitly taught that it's taken me a long time to get that it just takes time for you to really develop a relationship with anyone, whether it's romantic, whether it's platonic. And I think in America in particular, because we are so individualistic, the concept of what are the rules for healthy community, a lot of us didn't get that information, especially if we didn't get to spend a lot of time with, you know, people from a similar cultural background as ourselves. 
in Russia, which is totally not a place I think of as being super ethnic or anything, but they use the word friend so sparingly, so sparingly. I think too, if you did it in the States, people would think you're so rude. Like you're calling people that you've known for 10 years an acquaintance, but they're like, no, friendships take time and they take energy and the energy goes both ways. It, it just, even that concept to me, when it, I first came across it, I didn't fully get it, but I'm getting it now. Not everyone deserves your vulnerability. I, I'm going to say this last thing. <laughs> so Dario, you mentioned, um, you know, old folks saying, you know, um, you know, you just can't let everybody in this sort of thing. But I think about, I was just talking about this online with somebody. One of the things that I grew up hearing too is, you know, not to let people play in your head. Um, and, you know, they were referring to your hair, but then I was saying those words a couple months ago and it just sounded, I heard it differently. Like, oh, you got to protect your head space too. Right. So you can't be letting people play in your head, you know, um, and, and, and I think that again, just those have healthy boundaries and, um, and the different wisdom that we get around that it may not sound exactly how we might phrase it kind of in, in the modern sense, but I'll think about, yeah, like you just, you just can't do it. Um, and I think about the trick to like the other part that bothers me about some of it is also this, this wanting people to kind of be vulnerable sometimes functions as a form of surveillance to me. <laughs> so just, um, yeah, I'm going to just, I'm going to let that one go for That's now. That's where you're dropping the mic. I'm going to just let that one go because, um, yeah, I want to make space for other folks in, in the conversation. Yeah. I, I feel you about the, the head thing because it's also like a part of conjure. Like you don't let, like you cover your head around certain people. Mm-hmm. You don't let people touch your hair. You don't let people take your hair, like the, the mental safety um in black community and i i don't want to overgeneralize but i feel like in bipoc communities across the board like we have to be really protective of our mental space because it has been so for so long it's been tried it's been they've tried to colonize that um what they say we got a you know i got a peace of mind mm-hmm Right, exactly. Kim, big wins. <laughs> Do you want to say anything to all this? What is your take? Hmm. Thank you. Um, I'm gonna jump in and kind of share that I've been reading a lot about the five stages of grief, and speaking of you know colonized mentalities and you know these structures that we learn from from the dominant culture. Um, as we, I think, as we all have experienced grief, grief is very messy and these stages were never really meant to be like going from one to the other, to the next, to the next. And then as if like you experience one and then it's over and then you're completely done with denying or you're completely done with bargaining. You know, these are, I think, helpful, somewhat helpful, um, themes um that maybe we can kind of 
identify with and used to like okay maybe this is kind of what I'm feeling right now right um, it maybe helps to contextualize how we're feeling so it um, so we can understand our inner world in context with the external world um, so for me I noticed that um, I think a lot of focus is put on um, the the denial the bargaining the anger um, those parts of grief and actually when I came to like really feel for where am I right now in my sense of grief I think I'm actually feeling a lot of acceptance and I th think of acceptance as not not only uh, not not necessarily as like the end of grief right because that's kind of where it's positioned in this framework like the end of the stages is acceptance like you accept that you know whatever is lost is lost but I think the acceptance is also the longest phase because in that acceptance we accept that the grief is ongoing and the grief continues to materialize in different ways and so I've been thinking about where else um, where else can I lean sink in not lean in sink in to this feeling of acceptance um, acceptance of who I am acceptance of the conditions that I am currently living through that we're currently living through acceptance of um, where I am in comparison to where I want to be um, acceptance of um, the way the world is exactly um, acceptance of my complicity in uh, the toxic systems and behaviors that I've also inherited um, and just seeing what happens what happens what could happen from this space of acceptance so that's where that's where I'm at that acceptance piece I think is so big for me and like something I struggle with because I think I can accept the things that have happened in the past but where I still struggle is like how do I find acceptance of like okay I know what happened to me in the past I know what I no longer want to allow but like where how do I continually accept where my loved ones that I still associate with are at now and how they may or may not be able to show up for me in the ways that I need and accept that like I might need more than one particular person can give or I might not be able to give as much as one particular person like that the, the present acceptance is hard for me I think and I think you spoke to that a little bit and that's definitely something I still struggle with so thank you for bringing that into the conversation yeah, I like that explanation that that's not the end of the grief and that it just keeps going. So even when you say you struggle with it, can it also be that you just are still in the grief? That oh it, you move through the steps and then you go back, you know, the way we all do. Mm -hmm. And that maybe it feels like a struggle because you wish you could just not hurt anymore. But it also sounds like that is natural. Like, it sounds normal. Mm -hmm. It's not fun, but it sounds like that is the 
yeah, that that's how grief works for a lot of us. I think it's also acceptance of, um, you know, what you're capable and of receiving or giving in any moment, you know, maybe accepting, accepting that I need to put out, I need to put up my boundaries right now, accepting that this person is where they are in their journey and accepting that maybe we don't see eye to eye at this moment. Um, yeah, that's kind of where, where I go with that. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's really important, you know, I really like what you all are touching on. And I think it's important to recognize like what you we're all saying is like, grief is a cycle. And I think oftentimes we think of things linearly and we're like, with time and space, like these things are going to get better. But a lot of these emotions can be like reoccurring. And, you know, three months down the road, you're feeling the same emotion that you felt three years ago. And you're like, how am I feeling this in my body? Why is it feeling like this? And I think it's hard for us in real time to like acknowledge and be grateful for like negative feelings. I feel like that's something I've learned recently is like gratitude for this continuum of wellness, where it's like for things to be good, for you to feel good, there's gonna need some, be some bad. And we never like when we're praying or when we're meditating, we're always grateful for the good things that are coming to us, but we're never grateful for like all these red flags, right? We're never grateful for um, like all of these things that are hurting us. And it, I think it, it is something to say like, you know what? Thank you, creator, for putting me on this path that I, I personally think I can't get through, but you think that I'm strong enough to get through. Mm. You know, thank you for putting these obstacles in my way. I mean, we don't do that enough. And I think when you turn it on its head, it's, it's very, very different. Um, and maybe that's like a mindset that we need to be getting into. Mm. Yes. Yeah, that gratitude for the hard parts and the sticky parts um, is so hard. And I also find that it's one thing, like, I share that with, like, people that, you know, like, I facilitate and hold space for. But it's a whole other thing to actually practice it. Because in the moment, I can, like, I feel like in a ritual, I can be like, oh, thank you so much for, like, putting this obstacle before me. But, like... on the day-to-day there is still so much shame around still being caught up in the rumination of the pain um and not being able in this moment even with all my tools all my years of work not being able to move through it because like you said it is very natural and like these are it's a cycle like you said Benquin like we can't it just doesn't poof magically go away, you know? Like all the cons in the world cannot take away the pain that is just naturally a part of the human experience. Yeah. That's such a tough thing for me to accept. I would love to know, Big Win, was there something that helped you get to that point? Or did you start saying thank you? before you felt grateful or what is the, how do I get started? Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, in, in, this is hard, but this, this year um, was a hard one for me. I lost three of my grandparents, my great grandma, and then my grandma and my grandpa. And I was a pallbearer for 
all of their all of their funerals and at by the like hold up by the last one I felt like I was living Groundhog's Day. I mean, if you, I don't know if you're familiar with that movie where you're like, I'm waking up and this is the same exact day over and over again. Like, I don't, I don't know how many, how many more times I can do this, you know? Um, but I felt like because of those like hard things, um, it really like kind of cued some things up for me. One being like, I think the role that I play in my family and in our community is like when it's a cycle of life with death. And when, you know, when older people are passing on, you know, now my mother is like the grandmother now, you know, and I'm like, you know, the auntie, non-binary auntie, you know? So I think that there's like things to be said where like I was coming into certain roles in my life that I was scared of for a minute and have like kind of like yeah i mean acceptance is definitely a part of it but um by the end i mean i just i think everything that my grandparents have given to me you know whether that be like uh indigenous ways of knowing but even just knowing them as actual people in my life and now i want to you know i thank them for being alive but i also feel like that's a normal part of life you know and i thank them for allowing me to carry them into the afterworld because I mean you know in a lot of different cultures like there's specific people that do those types of things um and so to be playing that role I felt like by that third one I'm like okay I'm kind of getting the role of you know I'm kind of getting the hang of this or whatever um and I think we all have you know like you said uh God is like it's a human experience so I think that we all have obstacles like this in our life and I think that there's different ways that we can express it or different ways that tools that we use to get through those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like to say a word on the um, idea of acceptance um, in relationship to grief, because I think one of the things, so there's a couple of things I want to say. One of the first thing about acceptance, I realized that like I could accept where I am at um, in relationship to loss without necessarily accepting the conditions that created the loss. And I think that is sometimes where it's easy to get stuck, right? Like, oh, (laughs) I have to acknowledge that this is where I'm at, but the things that happen are absolutely horrible. Um, The circumstances that created this grief are absolutely terrible. Um, I think I think I've also been like rejecting the idea of that sometimes the things that like that some of this shit can be fixed, right? Like, I think that's another thing too. Like there's certain things that have happened to us that we have experienced. And I think this is why even rejecting those simplistic ideas around healing, because sometimes um, I think we think that because we've done a lot of healing work and we've done a lot of intentional things around trying to transmute our pain that we're never gonna feel pain again. Um, And so I think this is where I'm like tapping into the idea that closure is a myth, right? It's this idea that like, oh, this horrible thing happened to me, I did all the, all the rituals, all the therapy, all the herbs, all of this, all of that. And so now 
I'm never going to feel that again. I'm never going to experience that again. And I think, I don't think that's realistic. And I'm not exactly sure even where we, as a society, develop that idea. Um, And so I think, you know, Goddess, you mentioned something about like not being able to like move it. Um, And I've been trying to master this idea of like moving between letting a thing move through me or just moving around it, right? Like not feeling like some of that shit is not mine to carry. So like trying to know when, which is which. And so sometimes I think, um, you know, I feel like healing just gives me the opportunity to not let the thing destroy me. Um, That doesn't mean I'm gonna have, like never gonna have to face it again. That doesn't mean that I'll never even ask the same questions again. It just literally is just like, okay, I do not want to become a casualty of the horrible thing that happened to me. Um, And I think the last thing I'll say too about the stages of grief um, and Kim, you, you know, you mentioned about that it was never meant to be kind of this linear step-by-step process. And I often also think about, um, because I have definitely found it helpful to share with folks in workshop around the origin of how Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross developed, you know, those stages. Um, because that was even holding a lot of folks back. They thought something was wrong with them because they were like, I feel like I'm still stuck in this phase or why am I going back and forth? So people even just knowing that there's this natural in a sense, right? Um, I'm not, I won't pretend that I'm grateful for the... <laughs> not grateful for the bad days but I am grateful I am grateful though for the emotional range to be able to recognize that trouble probably not gonna last forever I am grateful to even recognize that I'm not like it's not the end right it might be something that has happened but I'm grateful just to be able to say I believe I can you know end up on the other side of it I don't know when and I think that is like even that process sometimes I talk about like not rushing folks from grief to gratitude like allowing us to kind of feel that full range so that we can you know all get there in our understanding but you know Kubler-Ross you know developed this those stages initially in her relationship with people who were facing their own end of life mortality And I do wonder sometimes, you know, would the conversation be a lot different if that wasn't, you know, those weren't her subjects or, you know, what's the, the, the culture of even the people that, you know, she was in conversation with um, as they face end of, excuse me, as they face end of life mortality. So I do wonder too about, um, yeah, I just and I and I love that we can continuously have this conversation and continuously say, "Hey, what is useful here?" Um, and even learn new models and, um, yeah, and just you know continuously have that conversation. But I did find that even folks felt so relieved when they were like, "Oh." So you mean there's nothing wrong with me? I remember telling people, I was like, listen, it is not uncommon for me to hit all of those cycles sometimes before 9 a.m. You know, like, those little 
waves, you know, these little touch points. Um, and I also thought it was also interesting too, because even just how I think ag- anger is situated, you know, in the model as well. Um, and I think it's useful. Like some of us should absolutely be angry about the things that have happened. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, I'm, I'm really appreciating, you know, this discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, so one thing that what you just said brought up is just like, I think that there's a difference between like, I don't think that all the tools that we have developed over time um, on the individual level, for me, it hasn't made it like the grief easier. It's made me more aware of the grief. So in some ways, the grief actually can be tenfold in the way it expresses itself now, because now I'm, I'm allowing myself to feel the pain. And hey, sometimes that don't even happen. (laughs) But when it does, like, I really feel it. Um, And I, I'm, I'm trying to allow it to last for as long as it needs to last. And if that's for as long as I, until I take my last breath, it's until I take my last breath. Um, But the awareness of it, I think, gives it more space to move through. Um, I do want to move more into the trust part of this because we've talked about, you know, the pain and the grief. But when it comes to trust after the harm. So where do you think trust begins? Um, And maybe you have even some examples of like what trust has looked at, looked like throughout your life. Well, I will say when I was a kid, I really thought my family unit was perfect. And I believed that we would always be there for each other and that my cult fam would always be there for me. I'm trying <laughs> not to like, uh, we can cult life. Anyway, sorry, keep going. But that, that trust, that belief it was just torn asunder when I realized that it was all conditional, that you had to conform to their belief system to be loved and be acceptable. So after that experience of being confident for a lifetime, well, until early twenties, that this love was real and unshakable, Then finding out that that wasn't true for years, it made me feel like family's not real. Uh, That expression, blood is thicker than water. It's like, what does that even mean? Okay. (laughs) And it really took a long time for me to realize that I had wounds around community because of that. So it felt like I couldn't believe that any space that was organized in any way could be safe. So I didn't want to volunteer for anything. I mean, even if it was like going to a homeless shelter for Christmas, I'm like, too much community. Everything felt like too much community, even if it was for like a day. And it took me so long to realize where that was coming from. But I just felt like I couldn't trust if more than a couple people got together. It's like, I don't know, there could be group think one of us could get kicked out. Anything could happen. People could turn on a dime. And what has been tremendous for me is being in spaces where people really know how to lead a group and keep it 
safer and acknowledge that no space is ever totally safe because we're all different and our triggers are all different and acknowledging that it's not going to be perfect. That has been helpful for me because that was never acknowledged in childhood. It was always assumed that the group just naturally was perfect and couldn't be broken, which is not reality. It's not how life works. If you're in a high control group, you could easily make it look like that's how life works, but that is, you know, part of the scam. So it's just been helpful for me to be around people who can recognize trauma, basically being led by trauma aware group leaders and community leaders Mm -hmm. has really helped me understand that my touchiness about community and not feeling safe was coming from a real place, was coming from that bad experience and help me recognize what I can look for to know I am okay and I don't have to be so guarded. I think uh, for me, as far as trust is concerned, um, I don't know. I think I had to learn early on, like how complicated humans are and like learning how to love folks um, and still hold space for their ability and capacity to disappoint. And then, you know, even beyond that, you know, also cause harm. Um, I I think I'm a person that is open to to relationship and community, but is also very much invested in the idea of growing my relationships at the rate of trust. And so I think that is something that was talked about earlier about, you know, kind of rushing that process sometimes and how sometimes I can, you know, set us up for not even just disappointment, but it could be, you know, on the lower side is disappointment. And then that could escalate to much, you know, larger issues. But I, I think for me, trust begins, I don't know, I try to take responsibility for it beginning with me it's like me being open to the possibility of reciprocity in an exchange with another human. Um, and then if I'm open to that, again, moving at the rate of trust and not trying to just rush through it because you know, there's a lot of reasons why we might rush, rush through it, but um, I tried to feel like, and, and, and I was in, um, I was in a group recently, um, I like to I attend sometimes Wednesday night study with um, J.T. Perry and the E-Cousins, and hey. there was, <laughs> shout <laughs> and, out to J.T. Perry. Yeah, shout out to Jade, and there was, um, I tried to find the um, the facilitator's name for the one session, but the conversation that kept coming up, well, the, the whole conversation really was about um, intuition in a sense. And then also kind of how do we get to that full body? Yes. And I think that sometimes 
this society always wants to rush you. And so how do I feel like, how do I take responsibility for my own energy and recognize when I'm not there yet? And so, and, and goddess, I think you might've attended, I don't know if you attended my Whose Imagination Created You workshop where we talked about kind of this idea of intuition. And, and so one of the things that um, there's another writer and intuitive spirit who I have a lot of respect for, Dominique um, uh, Mati, uh, one of the things she had posted recently was about living outside of her intuition for so long. And so I think, and I thought about that because I always start that workshop out with folks working with a definition of intuition and that sometimes, right, when we've been disconnected from it, you know, how do we, how do we rebuild that in ourselves? So for me, like, where does trust begin? It's like, I want to be able to just trust myself first. <laughs> like, I want to be able to trust myself. And I think that, you know, that's a, that can be a more difficult pursuit. And I wonder sometimes if, if the rushing sometimes too is us trying to rush past the parts of us that we don't trust in ourselves. Um, but yeah, so where does trust begin? I think for me, just trust, I don't know, like really like trust in myself, like to even start to move in the direction to even seek reciprocity in a relationship. Yeah. That resonates uh, so much with me, uh, Julia. Thank you for, for that thought of um, trust in the self as foundational to reciprocity. Um, trusting that inner relationship um, as a foundation for having fruitful external relationships with others. Um, in terms of uh, what this has looked like throughout my life, um, a story comes to mind um, when I was when I was ten. I was adopted by my aunt, um, and I went to live with her and her family. Um, my aunt is my mother's uh, younger sister, and my mother passed away when I was six. Um, it took a couple years for um, her family, her and her family, to um, formally adopt me. Um, but that first year was, was absolutely perfect. It was kind of, for me, that fantasy of like, oh, going off to another country and this, um, in this new world where this family like loves and cares for me and wants the best for me and, you know, is bringing me from this developing country of the Philippines into a new world where I'll have like all the opportunities available to me, right? <laughs> the fantasy of that. Um, and I think there was that initial trust in, in my caregivers, that initial trust in this fantasy of America um, and the Western world. Um, and not long after that, I felt that trust betrayed. Um, and a specific um, instance, um, where this there was a turning point in my life was maybe I was maybe 11 or 12 and I used to sing all the time I used to sing 
uh, while walking down the street, in the shower, um, anywhere and everywhere, um, to the doctor's office. Um, <laughs> after getting my teeth pulled, um, I'd always be singing. And then one day I was with my mom, my adoptive mom, and it was just her and I, um, I think coming home from the dentist actually, and she said, and I was singing, singing in the car, and she was like, why do you sing all the time? Stop that. And that moment still stuck with me for so long as this moment when my trust in her was betrayed because it was a moment where I realized, wow, this person doesn't see me, doesn't validate me, and doesn't actually want the best for me. And I think that moment um, really defined our relationship to where, to where it is now, where um, I think, I think I've it's been a lifelong journey to, to unpack that and to, to repair and to grow from this relationship. Um, and kind of going back to what we were talking about um, when I was a guest last, previously, um, when I was talking about how when we are children, we, um, we feel certain things based on what we experience and then we create a story we create laws about how to behave and we create um, narratives about ourselves and about other people now that I'm older now that I'm an adult just like my mom is just like my mom was I see how much she is a product of her own upbringing how she is a product of her own traumas that she inherited and that she experienced. And I see her more now, more and more now, as also just another adult. Um, and it complicates that feeling, that narrative that I had painted about her of, oh, sh oh, I can't trust her. Oh, she doesn't, she's not looking out for me. You know what, looking at it now, now that it's more clear to me, she might've just been tired. She was working eight, nine, ten hours a day, taking care of three children. Uh, my dad was often out at sea. And maybe that was just a bad day for her. And, and I had created this whole relationship, um, not just on my own, obviously. There's also other evidence to, to support the things that I feel. Um, but more and more now, I'm coming to a place of acceptance of who she is and um and where our where and how our boundaries look now mm, that feels so because like for me trust feels like this thing that isn't it continues to morph and i think as you get older and you experience more relationships you realize how not black and white it is and how trust is like an action that has more potency over time like trust builds over time trust is something that you have even when sometimes someone or you is not being trustworthy 
there can still be trust in the relationship. Um, and so, I, and part of that, Kim, like what you're speaking to around like understanding or being able to zoom out and look at the whole picture feels very much a, a part of trust. And even though that might be a part of trust, it still doesn't like justify, you know, how people have treated you or things like that. It just gives reasons for it. Um, but I think that's so much a part of trust, so much. Yeah, I think we can all say that we've trusted somebody that we shouldn't have. And that's like a kind of um, remembering the first time I feel like feeling that I trusted somebody that I shouldn't have. And like those kind of feelings of like, well, I'm going to have to put all these guards up. Like there's going to be a moat and you know like my castle is going to be and this wall is going to be as big as you know the wall between mexico and the u.s um and as you get old i mean i feel like as i've gotten older um you know and i'm glad julia that you brought reciprocity into the conversation um because that's what relationship that's fundamental to relationships you know um and knowing when to trust somebody is do they trust you? And is there that, that shared trust between each other? Because if we're not even there yet and we're not trusting each other, then we're not building like a solid foundation for our relationship, you know, whether that be platonic or not. I think that's like really important. I think for me growing up, like, I feel like there, yeah, I think there are things that are dysfunctional about every person's probably family unit where you're like, this is normalized to me. And then you grow up and you're like, okay, this is dysfunctional. I think a lot of people have like a negative connotation to the word dysfunctional. It makes them feel ugly, but what it means is it doesn't work. So we're doing things that don't work. And I don't think we should have like this ugly feeling when, when someone's like, oh, I have a dysfunctional family. And everyone's like, oh, that's, you know, that's an ugly feeling. And it's like, you know, kind of building what Kim was saying, like, we're, you know, we were raised by people who have their own lived experiences, their own traumas. And then those things that were inherited from the people before them and the people before them. And so really, we're just a microcosm, like as a person of this larger issue of trust. And what does it mean to actually, you know, build a community of trust? Um, and I think that there, there are fundamental things that need to happen in the community where you can be able to trust each other. I mean, we're just, I think we've lost some of those components from our communities. Yeah, I feel that so much. And I think that, so trust also starts with myself for me too. I agree with Julie on that. I also feel like trust looks differently across cultures um, and like what you do in order to show someone you are trustworthy or show them that you trust them um is can get lost in translation across cultures and so there's also that barrier and I, I mean I would love to get into that more but I know we are like short on time so I want to go to the next question but I'm just like oh this is like yes 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 um but the last question I want to ask is how do you know when you can start to trust again um and what does it feel like in your body and like if you want to tag on to that <laughs> 
Um, how do you try to show you can be trusted again? Can, can you ask that one more time? I thought I had it. Oh, you just posted it. Okay. <laughs> so like I tried to like cram three different questions in the one question, try to be slick and it's not work. How do you know when you can start to trust again? What does it feel like in your body? And then if you want to add on, how do you, um, do you try to show you can be trusted again or at all? I think, well, I know that I'm ready when I no longer feel completely overwhelmed at the thought of it. So if, I mean, I guess this is kind of obvious and extreme. If I feel like I'm going to have an anxiety attack or a panic attack at the thought of trying to be around someone or trying to be in a particular situation, I know it's not time. And <laughs> once I can at least go into it neutral, if I'm going in already activated with my nervous system feeling out of whack, I know I don't have the capacity to handle it. And so it does go back to being able to trust yourself. If I feel like I can't trust that if things go wrong, I can manage it, I can handle it, then I can't go into the situation. And I show that I can be trusted just by patience and respecting other people's boundaries. If somebody says they're not ready to repair a relationship or forgive, then I leave it alone and just continually make an effort to respect the other person's autonomy. If somebody doesn't want to be your friend anymore, if somebody doesn't want to be your family anymore, that's their right. And it's also your right to feel however you feel about that. But, you know, we can't impose our will on other people. Yeah, I think as far as knowing when I can start the trust again, um, what does it feel like in my body? I mean, I think the answer is, is, is very similar to what Dahlia said. It's definitely, like, I just don't energetically feel the resistance, right? Like, I just feel open. Like, I feel receptive to the exchange. Um, I'm curious about the possibility of what being in relationship will, you know, feels like, I think, um, and I think that's part of like the antitrust, like I am not interested in being curious about what this thing is over here. And I feel like trust is like, oh, I'm, in, I'm curious. I, I like to know and I'm open to finding out and investigating the possibilities of this, of this um, energetic exchange. Um, how do you try to show that you can be trusted again? <laughs> oh, I think, you know, it's so, it really comes down to trying to be, um, like they say, impeccable, not just with your word, but in your deeds as well. 
Um, and it, and it, it, and if any of us have ever, you know, been in that place, you know how sometimes it can be so difficult to try and shift that thing that you, you know, that may, maybe used to be so easily given. And so now to be put in a place to try to earn back what used to be so maybe freely given to you is, it's like the worst feeling in the world. Um, so I think like in trying to show like you could be, tr- for me, how can I be trusted again? I think there's a certain humility that comes with that and a certain humility and a certain consistency. Um, yeah. Yeah. Beautifully said. Yeah, I think it's important, you know, like what they say, like trust your gut. Um, and that comes, I think that's a part of intuition. I think trust like the actual like things that are going on in our belly or whatever, it those are like signals that are like whatever. Um yes or no. Should I do this? Should I should I trust this person or should I not? And I think that there's like experiences, there has to be able to like be experiences where you can build on that trust or where someone can like try to gain or like re-earn something that was taken. And I feel like, you know, being on, being on the other side of, of the coin, you know, when you're talking about how can you show to be trusted again, I think, um, for me, it's about, having these bonding experiences where I can show somebody that I've changed or, or show somebody that um, I was in the wrong and apologize in a situation, but not only, you know, just saying the words, but proving it in, in providing whatever is needed. You know, if somebody's like, can you be here at this time? You know, the small, like menial things to like, you know, I really trusted you, that you would show up for me in this moment and you didn't. Um, what does that mean to give it to, to gain those things back? And I think that has to do with, you know, our repair work that we're doing both internally and, and with our friends. It's like, I know that there's times where I've wronged people and I don't want that to be like, uh, and we've had to end relationships. I don't want that for my future. And I have learned from, you know, certain relationships where I think people played archetypes in my lives. And maybe I was the, maybe I was the villain in their eyes and maybe they were the villain in my eyes. Um, But at the end of the day, maybe we needed to come into each other's life so that we can learn that lesson. Sometimes we, when we win or when when things are all beautiful and gray, we don't learn those lessons that we're supposed to learn in life. And I think oftentimes the greatest lessons in life comes with the greatest hardships, the, the hard, the hard relationships, you know, the things that we went through that we didn't think we could get through. Yes. Yes. I think what challenging relationships often, um, hopefully inspire us to do is to redefine our boundaries. Um, and I think that for me is, um, a signal that trust can be rebuilt. Um, when, um, when I re when I'm able to state what my new boundaries are with someone else, um, or on the other side to have a conversation where I can ask what 
what their boundaries are. In, um, in preparation to this, you actually had another question that I wanted to re-inject back into the conversation because I think yeah. it's, it's really relevant to, to this conversation. And it's the question of how does worthiness play into building trust? Um, in thinking of boundaries, um, what I've been working on for myself and with clients is seeing boundaries not as an either or, right? Um, this question of like, are you worthy of my trust or are you not worthy of my trust? Um, and I'm moving away from this dualistic perspective because I think worthiness is something that we may have inherited from um, a patriarchal, capitalist, imperial, racist culture. Um, and rather than looking at worthiness, I want to invite this idea of, someone else mentioned this, capacity. And capacity can change at any moment based on our inner resources. Um, so maybe in this moment, I am capable of, um, of having an open, an open relationship or open exchange of energy. Um, and maybe another time when I have a different amount of resources available, maybe I have less capacity to engage in this relationship. Um, and I think just being open to how those boundaries fluctuate um, based on how we're feeling at any given time, I feel is, um, is a much more humane way to um, look at um, trust building. Yeah, there's a lot less like judgment there and there's like, I don't know, more ebb and flow to it. And I think that this is a good segue to go into like, this is such a beautiful conversation and I cannot express enough how grateful I am that y'all agreed to come on and how magical this conversation has been. But I really would love for this conversation to continue. I know that people are going to want to know what y'all are up to. So please, like, let's start with actually Kim, because you mentioned your client. So what have you been doing lately? Um, what what offerings do you currently have? And how can we get in touch with you? Awesome. Thank you for the invitation to share. Um, so I have uh, several online courses available. One is on um, the five elements and goal setting and how they relate to goal setting. So creating like this framework of setting goals and um, planning, essentially planning your days um, based on the five elements. Um, I also have another course on um, shadow integration. I think last time we spoke, it was going to be a workbook. It ended up becoming a full online course. <laughs> and, hey. Yes. And um, another course also on healing imposter syndrome through mindfulness. Um, along with those, I also am open to um, developing coaching relationships with people. Um, I usually begin with a four session package called, uh, I call it like a coaching starter pack. And so in this, in these four sessions, we get to know each other um, and we, um, yeah, we just kind of like, it's kind of like a dating, dating kind of experience. And then based on how that experience goes, um, you're welcome to sign up for a longer commitment, a longer relationship of coaching. Um, so yeah, I keep it very simple in that format now. Yeah. And, 
sending that invitation out there. <laughs> That's dope. I'm really curious about this like elemental planning thing. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm interested. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, okay. Let's go next to Dahlia. You're next on my screen. Um, yeah. What's going on with you? How can we reach you? So the best place to keep in touch with me is on Substack, which is basically an online newsletter service. And that's daliakinsey.substack.com. So if you sign up there, you can get the first chapter of decolonizing wellness. So you can see whether or not it's something you want to dig into. It will and be. also, thank you. There's a little quick guide to getting over some of the barriers to intuitive eating. So a lot of advice out there about intuitive eating is so white centered that I just don't think it feels accessible to a lot of people. So one of the guides that I have out there that you get automatically when you get on the newsletter is centered on that because like we've talked about in this conversation, trusting yourself is so foundational to being able to have relationships with other people. And one of the simple ways in which we totally undermine our intuition every single day is when we sit down to eat and we look outside of ourselves to decide what to eat and how much to eat and when to, you know, call it quits. So I really love using body led eating as an entry point to magnifying your connection or amplifying your connection to your intuition and what your body is telling you. And aside from that, I am working on having my first ever in-person retreat. It's going to be in Bali. That's in March of 2023. So if you're hearing this now, I feel like you should check it out, go out and register. I think it's going to be so much fun. And it's going to be, of course, queer and POC centered but if, if you have a partner who's not either of those things, they can come to as long as, um, you know, we screen them for safety, but it's going to yeah, be a good don't time. Don't be reckless. <laughs> don't be inviting people to the cookout that should not be at the cookout. They don't have no flavor. They ain't got no, no don't invite them. I love that. Don't be reckless. <laughs> oh, congratulations, Delia. <laughs> um, okay. So big wind, what's going on with you? <laughs> Yeah, I just want to thank you, Goddess, for inviting me onto this episode. And um, for me, I'm easily reachable by Instagram at Big Wind River. And I host a weekly playlist that's like a different genre every week. So if you're like, you know, needing to feel some type of way, usually um, you can look through them. I think I'm on like week 35 right now. Um, and so to do, uh, to 52 this year, I think it's probably the most consistent thing I've done in a minute. Um, <laughs> also, if you're interested, I have music. Um, I have a mixtape out on Bandcamp. It's Big Win Landback mixtape. And then I have two singles out currently right now on all streaming platforms. Um, and there is an album coming at the end of this year. So stay tuned yeah congratulations i can't wait for that album to drop and i've listened to your playlist and there's a lot of artists on there i did not know about so if you're looking for to get some new artists check out big wins playlist they are absolutely dope 
Um, Julian Mallory, rounding us off. What's going on with you? How can we get a hold of you? Um, I'm also very accessible on social media, uh, the Julia Mallory on Instagram and Twitter. Um, I always have a lot of creative irons in the fire. <laughs> and so I think what I'm most excited about is the possibility of this, this new short film, Chasing Waterfalls, um, that I am working on. And I also, it's probably the first time I'm saying this publicly, but I'm going to re release Survivor's Guilt again, but in a slightly different format. So right now it's like the, the essays, the prose and the poetry are combined. And I think those genres are both asking for their own space. And so I'm going to be adding additional essays and releasing the essay collection as its own standalone. And then the poetry, um, I think it would just be much more powerful if it's in its own, its own collection as well. So those are probably dropped sometime in 2023. I'm super excited about it too, because I think I think I'm also resisting the idea that we have to always be creating something new or topping our last personal best. And I think I think I wrote the hell out of the work in, in that book. And it's just like, no, I like to be able to remain in conversation with some of these things that I'm talking about. And, you know, how do I even feel about some of the things I said? Do I, you know, have I changed my mind? Have I grown in some areas? Have some of the ideas shifted um, when presented with new evidence or the absence thereof? So, um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. And I've been putting a lot of energy into, I'm also, I just started a youth art incubator in my city. And so that is also driving a lot of my, my, my focus right now. And so I just feel grateful to be able to do this work that I do and um, with the intention of leaving this place empty. So. Yeah. Yes, so grateful for the beauty that you are putting out there. You are constantly expanding your offerings um, and they're always so rich. Um, you know, y'all, it has been a beautiful conversation. So I'm going to end it here. I just want to express to y'all again how grateful I am for this conversation and also for your existence. Y'all are each magical and doing your own damn thing so beautifully. Um, and I And I just want to you know petition the ancestors and great spirit to, to continue to support you in all that you do because y'all are absolutely magical so thank you <laughs> it's been such an honor to be in such good company this was wonderful and it's a wrap it's a wrap it's a wrap 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 <laughs> There's no music on this season. So I will be 
the music. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that episode. And as I said in the beginning, please, please, please follow these folks. Um, and I cannot wait for y'all to check out episode three. It is the last episode of the season, um, where I'll be talking with other folks. I might do an episode with just me. Hmm. I don't really like to, but maybe it's time. So anyway, hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll see y'all on the flip side. Laters, gators.